I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host Blaine Dowler. How are you today, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you? Good, thank you. This time we're looking at the 37th Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1964, and the Best Picture winner of that year my Fair Lady, directed by George Cukor. My Fair Lady premiered on October 21st, 1964, and features Audrey Hepburn as Eliza Doolittle, Rex Harrison as Professor Henry Higgins, and Wilfred Hyde-White as Colonel Pickering. The film's screenplay was written by Alan J. Lerner, based on the Lerner and Lowe musical of the same name, which in turn was based on the George Bernard Shaw play Pygmalion. Our synopsis today comes from the fine contributors at Wikipedia. In London, Professor Henry Higgins, a scholar of phonetics, believes that the accent and tone of one's voice determines a person's prospects in society. At the Covent Garden Fruit and Vegetable Market one evening, he meets Colonel Hugh Pickering, himself a phonetics expert who had come from India to see him. Higgins boasts he could teach even Eliza Doolittle, the young flower seller woman with a strong Cockney accent, to speak so well he could pass her off as a duchess at an embassy ball. Eliza's ambition is to work in a flower shop, but her accent makes that impossible. The following morning, Eliza shows up at Higgins' home seeking lessons. Pickering is intrigued and offers to cover all the attendant expenses if Higgins succeeds. Higgins agrees and describes how women ruin lives. Eliza's father, Alfred B. P. Doolittle, a dustman, learns of his daughter's new residence. He shows up at Higgins' house three days later, ostensibly to protect her virtue, but in reality is there to extract some money from Higgins and is bought off with five pounds. Higgins is impressed by the man's honesty, his natural gift for language, and especially his brazen lack of morals. Higgins recommends Alfred to a wealthy American who's interested in morality. Eliza endures Higgins' demanding teaching methods and treatment of her personally, while the servants feel both annoyed with the noise as well as pitiful for Higgins. She makes no progress, but just as she, Higgins, and Pickering are about to give up, Eliza finally gets it. She instantly begins to speak with an impeccable upper-class accent and is overjoyed at her breakthrough. As a trial run, Higgins takes her to Ascot Racecourse, where she makes a good impression initially, only to shock everyone by a sudden lapse into vulgar cockney while cheering on a horse. Higgins partly conceals a grin behind his hand. At the race course, she also meets Freddie Ainsford Hill, a young upper-class man who becomes infatuated with her. Higgins then takes Eliza to an embassy ball for the final test, where she dances with the Prince of Transylvania. Also present is Zoltan Karpathy, a Hungarian phonetics expert trained by Higgins, who is an imposter detector. After he dances with Eliza, he declares that she is a Hungarian princess. 
Afterward, Eliza's hard work is barely acknowledged, with all the praise going to Higgins. This and his callous treatment of her, especially his indifference to her future, causes her to walk out on him, but not before she throws Higgins' slippers at him, leaving him mystified by her ingratitude. Outside, Freddy is still waiting and greets Eliza, who is irritated by him as all he does is talk. Eliza tries to return to her old life, but finds that she no longer fits in. She meets her father, who's been left a large fortune by the wealthy American to whom Higgins had recommended him, and is resigned to marrying Eliza's stepmother. Alfred feels that Higgins has ruined him, lamenting that he is now bound by middle-class morality, in which he gets drunk before his wedding day. Eliza eventually ends up visiting Higgins' mother, who is outraged at her son's callous behavior. The next day, Higgins finds Eliza gone and searches for her, eventually finding her at his mother's house. Higgins attempts to talk Eliza into coming back to him. He becomes angered when she announces that she is going to marry Freddy and become Karpathy's assistant. He makes his way home, stubbornly predicting that she will come crawling back. However, he comes to the unsettling realization that she has become an important part of his life. He enters his house feeling lonely, reflecting on his callous behavior, and missing Eliza so much that he turns on his gramophone and listens to her voice. Suddenly, Eliza reappears at the door and turns it off to catch his attention. And there ends my fair lady. What were your initial thoughts on this, Blaine? Oh, this is the first time I've seen it in a couple of decades. And the first time through, I don't really remember much as a child thinking, oh, that was a decent musical. But when I was going to musicals, I was rewatching Singing in the Rain or something else instead. With rewatching it now, Higgins does treat her like crap the entire time. I appreciate the fact that they actually call him out for it. That's one of the issues with, say, a Hitchcock film, is that Hitchcock characters often treat each other poorly, and it's not called out because Hitchcock did not know how to interact with other human beings and didn't see it as a problem. Here, yeah, they call him out for it. Pickering calls him out for it. You know, Mrs. Pierce says, yeah, I know Higgins just gave you these instructions, but you're going to sleep. It's 3 a.m. You need to sleep. And I don't know I found that they I thought they had the perfect ending when she called him out for how he was treating her in Mrs. Higgins' house and says, "No, I'm going to go be happy with Freddie for the rest of my life." And you know, he just called him out for it. Higgins couldn't believe it. Higgins' mother says, oh, "It's about time she told him." I thought that would be the perfect ending to the film, and then I kept going for ten more minutes and just undid a lot of that. I wanted to know what your take is on the ending. So, for for our listeners, I purposefully did not read the last two sentences of the Wikipedia plot synopsis. Because I don't know that their interpretation of the ending necessarily matches my interpretation of the ending. So, I, I wanted, I was curious what yours was, Wayne. Yeah, mine does not match the Wikipedia, which makes me question why that Wikipedia sentence starts with the words, it is clear, because it says it's clear that she will marry Freddie but offers friendship, and Higgins seems to consent to this, but I don't think that's clear at all. She walks in, turns off the gramophone, says the next line. He turns around and says, Eliza. They smile at each other, and then he says, okay, where's my slippers? And tips his hat over his face, which is exactly the same kind of callous treatment they'd had the whole time, and it fades out. So to me, it, it seemed like 
No, she was going back to the relationship they had before, almost like it was Stockholm Syndrome. And I, I just... Yeah. I'm almost there. There is a grin on Rex Harrison's face as he kind of reclines and tips his hat over his face that makes me think Henry Higgins means that as a joke. So I don't know that he's necessarily completely unlearned everything he had in the epiphany in the previous, you know, five minutes in the film. But I am with you. I I think it is a rather ambiguous ending, and I don't know that she ends up with... I I don't know that she ends up with Freddy. This is my... Like you, this was my first viewing in a long time, and I think the first and only time I saw it was probably when I was a child, and intellectually knew what was going on, but didn't have the maturity to pick up all of the nuance. And I find this to be a surprisingly complex musical. Not musically, but you have you have a story set in the Victorian era, which is satirizing both gender roles and class roles. And both for the period in which it was set and the time in which it was made, you can find in it a very pro-feminist message that I think is a little atypical, uh, as I said, both for when it was set and when it was filmed. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's Like I said, if, had they chopped it up for the last 10 minutes, it, it would have been very pro-feminist where she's saying, yeah, you used me? I'm done. You don't get me anymore. You know, I got what I wanted from you, and now I'm ready to move on to a happy life. That That's where it should have been, especially with Mrs. Higgins saying, well, it's about time. Right. And, and I, if she is strong enough to overcome the conventions of her era, I think she doesn't need Freddy. That was the one point in Higgins' rebuttal in their confrontation at the end where I thought he was spot on. Being Carpathy's assistant and marrying Freddy's beneath you, you don't have, you know, you don't have to do that. In that regard, he was spot on. She was, mm-hmm. you know, she felt like he had ruined her life, which is a notion I want to talk about a little bit more because there's some interesting things going on there. So she was looking for what she thought were the only avenues in society left for her. But ultimately, I don't think she, in my head canon, Eliza does not marry Freddy. I, I guess I'll just put it that way. Yeah, I don't think they stayed together in the long term because he was frustrating her enough. I got a lot of that speech as her saying, I could do what I want, especially saying, you know, she was going to be the other guy's assistant. In, in sort of my head canon, she chewed him out for it, walked out, and then she just ends up living happily. If she does marry happily, it's probably to a character we haven't met yet. And I see her owning and operating her own flower shop with Pickering's help just to get the finances going in a loan that she pays back in full with interest. Mm -hmm. That's where I could see this easily going. So, Henry Higgins, do you you see him... So, some of the 
I'm sorry, I'm putting this together poorly. Some of the interpretations I've seen of of both the play and the film cast Pickering and Henry Higgins in a homosexual relationship. I was curious, did you see that? I saw it more as Henry Higgins being perhaps more asexual and perhaps having some social coping deficiencies. He was not as extreme, but I saw a lot of the Sheldon Cooper, Leonard Hofstetter relationship in the Colonel Pickering and Henry Higgins relationship more than I saw any kind of romantic relationship. But I, I was just curious what your read on it was. Yeah, I read it as asexual. I don't know about the comparison. I know those characters are from the Big Bang Theory. I have tried watching that and couldn't. I Just for the listeners, in case you didn't know, I got two physics degrees before I got my education degree, and I found that show very off-putting. Because it wasn't, partly because it wasn't laughing with nerds, it was laughing at nerds, and it originally launched in the same time zone, or time slot, as Chuck, which I thought did the nerd culture much better. Also because I found the characters on Big Bang Theory were making mistakes that they wouldn't be making. The first episode I saw, they were talking about their marathon of the Superman films, and Sheldon goes on this rant about how, you know, that the helicopter rescue wouldn't have worked because it's all about, you know, the velocities and the sudden stop. And if Superman had caught Lois, he'd have split her into three. He would have to match her velocity first. And it drove me nuts because if we have physics majors who watch all these movies in a monthly marathon, they would know that Superman actually does that. If you look at the background when he catches Lois Lane in that 1978 film, he is flying downwards to match her velocity, slowly decelerates, and then turns around and goes back up to catch the helicopter. So they're reaming him out for the one movie that actually gets that right. <laughs> and then they go, I think I was part of the series finale where they're talking about, well, no, you have to leave your girlfriend out because there's only so many people that can be nominated for a Nobel Prize. And the limit on the number of applicants for a Nobel Prize was lifted prior to the series premiere. So the whole series finale, the whole plot line doesn't work. Again, because they didn't do the proper research. So anyway, that ends my Big Bang Theory rant. But yeah, to answer your question about this, yeah, I did get them as more asexual. If anything, I thought that maybe Higgins had chosen that life basically because he does treat everyone like crap. That was his defense when Doolittle mm-hmm. calls him out for treating her like crap. He's like, you treat me, still treat me like a nothing flower girl. And his defense was, well, I treat everybody like nothing. And I treat everyone like crap. It wasn't because of your station in life. So I don't think Henry Higgins is appealing to any self-respecting woman. And he just wasn't able to have a healthy relationship, so he gave up on it because the alternative is to change, which I don't think he does, like we said. No. Or like you said, he seems to have that that epiphany where he says, oh, yeah, maybe I change. And when Doolittle comes back to him, to me, I felt like that was undone. If she had stayed away, maybe he could have actually become a better person. So if instead of ending the movie when Mrs. Higgins said you messed up, maybe end it with him listening to her voice, but cut it off before she comes back. So we think, well, maybe Higgins is going to become a better person because he lost Eliza. But again, it didn't go there. Right. It, well, everything's an experiment to him. One of the bright spots in this is, excuse me, 
Stanley Holloway as Alfred Doolittle, Eliza's father. And <laughs> the the way the way Rex Harrison handles him, you can tell everything's an experiment to him. Here's this l- low, delightfully amoral person from within the confines of again, from within the confines of the society, who yet has his own personal code, right? So Alfred wants five pounds. He doesn't want more than five pounds because that wouldn't be right. That would, you know, that would be too much. He wants just enough, you know. Mm-hmm. So what does Higgins do? Higgins sends him to a millionaire moralist just to see what would happen if I take this person who's extremely inter- interested in morality and combine them with somebody who's extremely amoral. I wonder what would happen. You can see that that was Higgins mindset. Yeah, the moralist expert was annoying him, so he decided to annoy him in return by setting him the worst example. Mm-hmm. And it kind of blew up in both of their faces, although I think if Higgins found out what happened, he would just laugh about it. Yeah, definitely. So what did you think of the notion of a person's life improving to the point to where they don't fit into their old life anymore. I don't, I don't know that people consciously think about social class as much anymore. Maybe I may be saying that from a spot of privilege, and if I am, I uh, apologize. But the notion of not just you can wear nice clothes and have a nice bath and nobody recognizes you. I don't mean that aspect of it, but the aspect of you start hanging around a different types of people, you start learning new things, your horizons broaden, and suddenly you don't feel like you fit in with a particular crowd that you thought that you felt that you belonged with before. Because I think I, I think there's two crucial turning points for Eliza. One is when, after the ball, absolutely no one recognizes her contributions to winning the bet and to all that she's learned. And the second is when she goes back to Coventry Garden and she realizes that she can't relate with what was her peers in the same way anymore. I... I think there is validity to it, and I'm saying that from a little bit of personal experience, but also experience as a teacher, watching as students do that shift and how they are judging each other. When I grew up, I grew up in one of the most culturally diverse neighborhoods in the city of Edmonton, and I saw students who were best friends in grade one come back in grade two, and one said, oh, we're not allowed to to talk to each other anymore because they'd hung out over the summer and that's when their parents found out oh they yeah they came from the same street in their home country but it was opposite ends of the street so they were cut off because you know they would obviously be a bad influence even though they were best friends and i i have seen people who just didn't fit in my my best friend in junior high and i drifted apart we tried reconnecting as adults and we just weren't the same people. We did not mesh anymore. So 
Yeah, I do think that there is validity to that. I think the pattern of speech is not enough mm-hmm. to explain the difference. So I think there can be changes, but it, it needs more than this. My, my issue with that was the fact that her transformation was not gradual. That is a part that really sticks for me. Yes, it's... I, I guess it's just the artifice of the film, but it is flip a switch. Yeah. It was horrible and perfect. Now, they did have the nuance of once they thought she had it, when she gets angry in the third act of the film, she fluctuates, which I liked. Mm-hmm. But but you never saw the transition from horrible to perfect. No, it was practically mid-sentence flip of a switch, which gave them something to hang another song on. But, yeah, it, it helps that when they took her to the races, yeah, she presented well at first, but then the actual content of her discussion wasn't there in terms of what they were looking for. Do we want to mention who played Freddy at this point? Yes. Because that's Jeremy Brett, who is probably best known these days for being an exceptional Sherlock Holmes in the Granada TV series of the 80s and 90s. And another, just if we're calling out the actors, another one that people might recognize, a very small role when someone, someone comes to escort Eliza to meet the Queen of Transylvania at the ball. That's Alan A. Peer, who is probably best known for playing Alfred Pennyworth in the 1966 Batman series. Another. I mean, we've already mentioned him, but someone else that genre fans would definitely recognize is uh, Willifred Hyde-White, who plays Colonel Pickering. He always plays kind of a stuttering role, for lack of a better word. It, I think his natural acting style was to always kind of have himself seem to be grasping for words. But he is in both Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers in the 25th century, in the 70s. And I did not know this until I was reading his biography. His comic book connection is his son is actor Alex Hyde-White, who was Mr. Fantastic in the Roger Corman Fantastic Four film. Okay. Which I will maintain on a script level is still the strongest Fantastic Four we've got that actually used the title. It is. It really is. Um... Yeah, the best Fantastic Four film that's out there right now is the first Incredibles movie, but of those that actually use the property, Corman had the best script to work with. If Michael Kaiser and John Wilson are listening, if you ever bring back Make, my, make Ours Marvel, I'm, I'm just saying there are a couple people who are available for a discussion on the Fantastic Four Roger Corman film, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Where, as a teacher... Because I was thinking about this as I was watching the third act. I think I know your answer, but I'm just going to ask. How much of a student's success do you think is the teacher? And how much do you think is the student? Because that's really the linchpin of the conflict in the third act. Yeah, it, you need a lot of the motivation from the student. So a good teacher can inspire them and keep them engaged. But yeah, any teacher like Doolittle, who says, oh yeah, it was all me, it's not you, is just not well-suited to the profession. You'd need that student buy-in. If it was 100% teacher, 
then every student in your class would end up with the same grade. And they clearly don't. Now, that's probably more true in the younger grades when they're more likely to be coming in with the same skill set. As you get to the later grades, you know, they've had different teachers, they've had different experiences, different skill gaps will produce differences as well. But yeah, student effort is a big part of it. As a teacher, it's my job to make sure that they've got what they have, try to help them understand why it's relevant and worth learning. And also, as a high school teacher, I need to recognize which skill gaps are in place and help fill those in so that they can succeed and make sure they believe they can succeed. So yeah, that a lot of the heavy lifting is done by the students. So Eliza was absolutely right to be frustrated when Pickering and Higgins were saying, oh, it's all the two of us. Whereas I'm going, no, it's Higgins and Eliza were the main two contributors. Then Pickering and Mrs. Pierce, at least, for all the household help, deserve some input on that too. I only have one other thing in my notes, Blaine, but I think it's probably best served for when we cover the nominations. Was there anything else you wanted to cover before we transition to that? The only other thing we should mention is that this was largely inspired by George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, which did have a film adaptation as well about three decades prior, which I am now tempted to go back and watch to see how they chose to end it there. I have it in the 50 Years of Jonas Films box set that Criterion put out a few years ago, which is 50 Jonas Films in one giant box. I'm trying to remember. I know that it came up when we were earlier in our podcast. I'm trying to remember if it was a nominee. Uh, It was. It was. It was. It won the Oscar for Best Screenplay its year. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Actress. Okay. Okay. Yeah, just pull it up. That would be the 1938 version starring Leslie Howard as Professor Henry Higgins and Wendy Hiller as Eliza Doolittle. So just scrolling down, I am seeing a lot of the same roles, but, you know, as we go down to the bottom... I'm seeing a couple of social reporters. I'm seeing a vicar. So there are some deviations as well. And then the other film connection, which is not official as far as I can tell, but I cannot imagine that the only credited screenwriter for Pretty Woman was not thinking of My Fair Lady when they put that movie together. Yeah. It's it's remarkably similar aside from Julie Roberts not being a flower girl, and it's not as focused on speech, but it's a lot of the same story. Well, even there's even a lot of Colonel Pickering, now that you say that, and Hector Elizondo's character in that film. I haven't seen that since it was in theater, so I don't remember it well enough to remember Hector Elizondo. I still mostly associate him with other roles, but... He was the... Not drawing a blank on the correct term, he... He worked at the hotel where they were... He was the concierge at the hotel who helps her prep for the dinners and the events. He's the one who takes care of her when she gets shunned when she first tries to go shopping. Okay, yeah. Probably worth a rewatch, because I remember it being good. I just Mm -hmm. haven't gotten around to it. 
So in that case, it sounds like it's time to run through the awards for the year. I think so. Okay, so the 37th Annual Academy Awards were broadcast on April 5th, 1965 in the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. They were hosted by Bob Hope. Now, the best picture clearly went to My Fair Lady, beating out Beckett, Dr. Strangelove, Mary Poppins, and Zorba the Greek. Best director went to George Kakor for My Fair Lady, beating out Beckett, Dr. Strangelove, Mary Poppins, and Zorba the Greek. That's a perfect fit, and it's not the last time we'll have exactly those five movies nominated. Best actor went to Rex Harrison for My Fair Lady, beating out Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, both for Beckett, Anthony Quinn for Zorba the Greek, and Peter Sellers for Dr. Strangelove. Best actress went to Julie Andrews for her the title role in Mary Poppins, beating out Anne Bancroft, Sophia Loren, Debbie Reynolds, and Kim Stanley. Audrey Hepburn was not nominated, and they think two reasons for that are that Marnie Noxon dubbed a lot of her singing because they weren't the songs weren't written in the key that is natural to Audrey Hepburn, and rather than adjust the key as they often did, they dubbed her. And another reason is they felt it was a snub to cast her in the first place, considering Julie Andrews was the one who played that on stage with Rex Harrison. I want to talk about that some more, Blaine, but I can wait until after you finish going through the nominations. Okay. Best Supporting Actor went to Peter Ustinov for Top Copy, beating out John Gilgood for Beckett, Stanley Holloway for My Fair Lady as Alfred P. Doolittle, Edmund O'Brien for Seven Days in May, and Lee Tracy for The Best Man. Best Supporting Actress went to Lila Kadrova for Zorba the Greek, beating out Gladys Cooper in My Fair Lady as Mrs. Higgins, Edith Evans for The Chalk Garden, Grayson Hall for Night of the Iguana, and Agnes Moorhead for Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Best Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen went to Father Goose, beating out A Hard Day's Night, One Potato, Two Potato, The Organizer, and That Man from Rio. Best Screenplay based on material from another medium. Here is that perfect five again. This time it went to Beckett, but the other nominations were Dr. Strangelove, Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, and Zorba the Greek. Best Foreign Language Film went to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow out of Italy, beating out Raven's End, Salah Shabati, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and Woman in the Dunes. Best Documentary Feature went to Jacques-Yves Cousteau's World Without Sun, beating out 14 to 18, The Finest Hours, Four Days in November, and The Human Dutch. Documentary Short Subject went to Nine from Little Rock, beating out 140 Days Under the World, Breaking the Habit, Children Without, and Eskimo Artist Kinujuak. Best Live Action Short Subject went to Castle's Conducts 1964, beating out Help My Snowman's Burning Down and The Legend of Jimmy Blue Eyes. Best Short Subject Cartoons went to The Pink Fink, now, it's actually the Pink Panther film, or Pink Panther short, by Fritz Freling. That beat out Christmas Cracker, How to Avoid Friendship, and Nudnik Number 2. Best musical score, substantially original, went to Mary Poppins, beating out Beckett, The Fall of the Roman Empire, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and Henry Mancini's Pink Panther theme. Best scoring of music, adaptation, or treatment went to My Fair Lady, beating out A Hard Day's Night, Mary Poppins, Robin and the Seven Hoods, and The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Best song was... Chim Chimmery from Mary Poppins, beating out Dear Heart, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, My Kind of Town from Robin and the Seven Hoods, and Where Love Has Gone. The ones I didn't specify the movie, that's the title track. Best sound effects went to Goldfinger, beating out the lively set. Little aside here, I'm honestly surprised that the title track from Goldfinger was not nominated for best song. 
I am too. And just to remind our listeners, in case they're wondering why a lot of the musicals that have had other nominees this year don't have an entry under Best Song, to qualify for Best Song, that song has to have been originally written for the film. So a film like My Fair Lady, where all of the songs were lifted from the Broadway play, would not qualify for Best Song. Yes, so I'm, I'm wondering if there's some other, something with the Goldfinger song that disqualified it that we didn't know about, because, I mean, Chim Chimbery is a good song, but I, I don't know any of the other music, but Goldfinger is one that people tend to know, possibly because people are still watching it. It's an ongoing successful franchise today. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Best Sound went to My Fair Lady, beating out Beckett, Father Goose, Mary Poppins, and the unsinkable Molly Brown. Best Art Direction Black and White went to Zorba the Greek, beating out The Americanization of Emily, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Night of the Iguana, and Seven Days in May. Art Direction Color went to My Fair Lady, beating out Beckett, Mary Poppins, Unsinkable Marley Brown, or Molly Brown, and What a Way to Go. Black and White Cinematography, Zorba the Greek beat out Americanization of Emily, Fate is the Hunter, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and Night of the Iguana. Color Cinematography, my Fair Lady beat out Beckett, Cheyenne, Autumn, Mary Poppins, and the unsinkable Molly Brown. Black and white costume design went to Night of the Iguana, beating out House is Not a Home, Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte, Kisses for My President, and The Visit. Costume design color went to My Fair Lady, beating out Beckett, Mary Poppins, unsinkable Marley Brown, and What a Way to Go. And I keep saying Marley, it's Molly Brown. I don't know why I keep doing that. Best film editing, Mary Poppins beat out Beckett, Father Goose, Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte, and My Fair Lady. And Best Special Visual Effects, that's one category, went to Mary Poppins and Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. Sorry, that struck me that special visual effects are one category because now special effects are ones that happen on set and are filmed as is by the camera, and visual effects are the ones done in post-production with CGI and whatnot. And then the honorary award went to William Tuttle for his outstanding makeup achievement for the Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. Interestingly, they did not give a technical award for the invention of the wireless microphone that they hid behind Rex Harrison's tie. But I think that played into it winning Best Sound. Probably. But anything else, normally they would have a technical award saying, yeah, you've made making movies much, much easier forever. So here's a statue. So did we want to circle back to the Julie Andrews thing? Yes. So I'm going to say this with the qualifier that I've only seen two of the films nominated for Best Actress, Mary Poppins and the Unsinkable Molly Brown. I'm not disputing Julie Andrews' win, but politics aside, where do you come down on singing versus acting when considering something like a Best Acting Award? Is it for the entire performance? So you expect the actor or actress to do, quote-unquote, the entire performance so that something like hiring someone else to dub over the singing should disqualify someone? Or do you think that it should focus on the acting part of the performance and that the dubbing should not disqualify. Because honestly, I can't pick between Julie Andrews and Audrey Hepburn for the two roles, but 
I think Audrey Hepburn deserved a nomination. Yeah, I I haven't seen the other nominees like you, so I yeah I I don't see an issue with nominating her, especially since she did the training and she was singing. So when she was lip syncing on the sound stages, as you know people do, she had actually trained her voice and she was lip syncing to her own recording. The only person who wasn't lip syncing was Rex Harrison because he couldn't sing. So he was just speaking the whole time, which I would think would be more of a disqualifier than them saying, yeah, we didn't want to recompose the music. So we, we dubbed you after the fact, which is what happened with Hepburn. So she actually had sung all of the songs and was lip syncing to her own work and then had it swapped out later because they didn't want to pay the composers to reorchestrate all the pieces when they could bring in Marnie Noxon uncredited. Yet again, she had done that for Deborah Kerr in The King and I. She had done that for Maria's singing voice in West Side Story. This was Marnie Noxon's career in a lot of ways. Whereas Rex Harrison, so he was the only one that wasn't syncing, so things actually looked off because he would have perfect limp sync when the others were singing. So they had to go through in post-production and mess around with his recordings to break the lip syncing so he didn't seem out of place. So, yeah, I personally, I would not have considered that as disqualifying her for the nomination. I could see Julie Andrews because she did a phenomenal role in Mary Poppins. And people were also, you know, wanting to be kind to her and almost like a consolation prize for being left out of the running for the My Fair Lady role. She was not offered this role. And a lot of people feel, no, she nailed it on Broadway. She should at least be offered the part, you know, so I could see them giving her the award because she did an incredible job and was slighted somehow in the same year. So yeah, I would have no issues with Audrey Hepburn being nominated until I see Anne Bancroft, Sophia Loren, Debbie Reynolds, and Kim Stanley. I'm not going to say that, yeah, it was top five of the year. Right. But it was certainly an excellent performance to the point that, yes, it could be there. The number of times where she is acting in the background when the camera's focused on Higgins and Pickering, particularly in the end when they're slighted. That's the way it was shot, mm-hmm. is that she was in the background and she was being ignored, but that didn't change her performance. She wasn't just sitting there mildly in the background because she's thinking, oh, you know, eyes are going to be there. She doesn't stop acting and she acts well the entire time. I feel like comparing the two roles, I think the. My Fair Lady role, Eliza Doolittle, has more emotional complexity to it than Mary Poppins. And I agree with you. Julie Andrews was doing it night after night on the stage, so it's not like she couldn't do it right. But I also don't want to take away anything from Julie Andrews and Mary Poppins so to where, because I feel like that was a very nuanced performance. And while blending live action and animation was not anything new, I mean, most of the first animated shorts were actually that, mm-hmm. this was the first time it was taken to this level to where you completely immersed actors in animation. I mean, we, we talk now about someone in a Guardians of the Galaxy movie trying to emote to a tennis, a floating tennis ball, right? Mm-hmm. Julie Andrews was doing that 50 years ago. I mean, I don't know exactly what they were doing, but 
when you look at numbers like It's a Jolly Holiday for Mary, to where her and Dick Van Dyke have to touch and take objects from animated characters, I don't think it had been taken to that level prior to that film. I mean, that's obviously why it won Best Visual Effects. Yeah, I I am right there with you. I'm looking at the examples I can think of that come before this, like Gene Kelly dancing with, with Jerry the Mouse in Anchors Away. But I think Mary Poppins is the first time that I saw them interacting. And prior to this point, a lot of them, you know, as you said, the early animated films were like that. So Windsor McKay and his moving pictures was the first animated film ever and actually starts with Windsor McKay drawing the first frame. And then he walks out to go, you know, someone comes, collects and they go for a coffee break. Camera pans over to what he drew and then the pictures come to life. Mm Mm-hmm. You've got the Coco the Clown from the Fleischer Studios where sometimes the animator would leave him half-drawn and Coco would pick up the pencil and finish drawing himself. But it wasn't to this degree. Not like Mary Poppins. So yeah, if we look at Mary Poppins and the integration between the live action and the animation, the sight lines line up. They swap props. It is a better job done in 1964 than I think even the Star Wars prequels in the 1990s where... They had the budget, and they had the experience with visual effects. Mm-hmm. And they still couldn't get the eyelines to work, because people were looking at a tennis ball, and then they created a CGI character whose eyeline didn't match up with where the tennis ball was. So yeah, I, I think that you're right. If anything, you say that the, the role of Eliza Doolittle is filled with complexity, you are absolutely right. And that is true on a script level. Whereas I think the nuance with Mary Poppins is more about the performance than the script. Mm -hmm. I do think a lot of that nuance that is absolutely there was added by Julie Andrews rather than read off the page. So should we run through the Golden Globes or are there there more comments on the... I forgot to actually give the numbers this year. Uh, Mary Poppins had the most nominations with 13 and then Beckett and My Fair Lady were tied with 12 and then it's seven and down for the others. Most wins went to My Fair Lady with eight, and then Mary Poppins with five, with Zorba the Greek, the other multi-award winner, with three. Did you want to debate the Best Picture nominees, or did you want to wait until after we covered the Golden Globes? No, I realized after I said it that I had forgotten we do that part now. So, I wouldn't have picked My Fair Lady as Best Picture, and it's not because there's anything wrong with the film. This is another... Murderer's Row, (laughs) so to speak, nominee list. In hindsight, I think it should have gone to either Dr. Strangelove or Mary Poppins. I am right there with you. I haven't seen Beckett or Zorba the Greek yet, but while I agree that My Fair Lady deserved the nomination, I would not have given it the win. Again, Dr. Strangelove and Mary Poppins are two different films. If you want the optimistic musical, Absolutely go for Mary Poppins. If you want a more cynical comedy, then absolutely Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which is the full title, is one that that could easily take home that nomination. Same with Kubrick as Best Director. I would have been my pick as well for Dr. Strangelove. I would have gone either Peter O'Toole or Peter Sellers for Best Actor. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen Beckett, so I'll take the word. But yeah, Peter Sellers. I I mentioned the movie for those who aren't familiar with it. He was nominated for playing three different characters 
in that film. Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, President Merkin Muffley, and Doctor Strangelove. Uh, so he gives three different and excellent performances in that film. And they are three different performances. It, yeah. It's not like some actors who do multiple roles and it's the same role with different wigs and false teeth. Yeah. But no, it's... The, he did have the wigs and the false teeth, so he's made up to look like three different people. But it's it's three different performances, different body language, different everything. So shall we go to the Golden Globes? Yes. Okay, so their pick for the best drama was Beckett. Uh, Zorba the Greek was also nominated there. Their pick for the best comedy or musical was My Fair Lady. And Mary Poppins was nominated there. They did not nominate Dr. Strangelove. Ooh. Best actor for drama did go to Peter O'Toole for Beckett. Best Actress for Drama went to Anne Bancroft for The Pumpkin Eater. Best Actor, Comedy, or Musical also went to Rex Harrison for My Fair Lady. Interestingly, they did nominate Peter Sellers for The Pink Panther rather than Dr. Strangelove. They also nominated Dick Van Dyke for Mary Poppins. Best Actress, again, Julie Andrews for Mary Poppins, but they did nominate Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady, as well as Sophia Loren for Marriage Italian Style, and Debbie Reynolds for Unsingable Molly Brown, who were nominated at the Oscars. Supporting actor, Edmund O'Brien for Seven Days in May. And Stanley Holloway was nominated for My Fair Lady. Supporting actress went to Agnes Moorhead for Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. They did not nominate Gladys Cooper here. Best director went to George Cukor for My Fair Lady. No nomination for Kubrick. Best music original score went to Follow the Empire, beating out Beckett, Mary Poppins, Seven Days in May, and Zorba the Greek. Again, it's original, so my fair... Oh, the score, My Fair Lady, would have been... would have qualified. For Best Song, My Fair Lady did not qualify and was not nominated. That went to the title track to Circus World, beating out title tracks for Dear Heart, From Russia with Love, Sunday in New York, and Where Love Has Gone. No nominations for Mary Poppins here. Wow. And from Usher with Love, rather than Goldfinger. And then their best TV show went to The Rogues, beating out 12 O'Clock High, The Munsters, The Red Skeleton Show, and Wendy and Me. Interestingly, The Rogues is not one of the two shows I've heard of from that list. Best TV Star Male went to Gene Berry for Burke's Law, beating out Richard Crenna, James Franciscus, David Jansen for The Fugitive, and Robert Vaughn for The Man from U.N.C.L.E. And Best TV Star Female went to Mary Tyler Moore for The Dick Van Dyke Show, beating out Dorothy Malone for Peyton Place, Yvette Mamou for Dr. Kildare, Elizabeth Montgomery for Bewitched, and Julie Newmar for My Living Doll. So, how do you think these stacked up? When you said that Mary Poppins didn't snag any of the song awards, I was surprised, or at least not nominated. I mean, I, I have never understood the reverence people have for Chim Chim Tree, mostly because to me it's like just a series of little vignettes. It's not really a complete song, but I, my preference has always been a jolly holiday with Mary. See, and I would have gone for supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Yeah, you know, there's a lot there to pick from, so. Or a spoonful of sugar, y you know. <laughs> How many more of those songs do people know than. <laughs> Yeah, when you're talking about Mary Poppins, I wonder if maybe they split the vote or something, because you could literally look at every song in that movie and say, that's a contender. I, I don't know. As far as the best film drama 
for the Golden Globes. I haven't seen any of the nominees. No comment. I see that Beckett and Zerba the Greek were both there with Beckett winning. Mm-hmm. So that's consistent with the Oscars, at least. We'll talk about how that stacks up with Letterboxd and IMDb later. For the common year musical, My Fair Lady, here I have seen both Mary Poppins and Father Goose. I have not seen Unsinkable Molly Brown or The World of Henry Orient. I don't understand why Dr. Strangelove is not in this list. And Dr. Strangelove, Mary Poppins, and arguably Father Goose, I would give it to over My Fair Lady. Yeah. Now going through the other nominations, IMDV voters almost agree with the Academy here. If you look at the just the nominated films, Dr. Strangelove comes out as the first pick, and My Fair Lady is second. But sorting them all, everything that came out in 1964 with at least a thousand votes, by descending vote or rating, Dr. Strangelove comes out at number five on the list. My Fair Lady is 21, with Mary Poppins and Beckett coming in at 22 and 23. So Dr. Strangelove has an 8.4 out of 10 for the average rating. Mm-hmm. My Fair Lady, Mary Poppins, and Beckett are all a 7.8. So that's a very tight race. And Zorba the Greek comes in at number 32 with a 7.7. So that's pretty close with Dr. Strangelove on top. That's a closer spread, I think, than we normally get. It is. Yeah, it's a lot tighter. The letterbox users disagree. They put Dr. Strangelove as number three for the year. And Mary Poppins is second. And from there, Zorba the Greek and Beckett are both coming in next. Beckett a little bit ahead of Zorba the Greek. And then My Fair Lady is actually dead last for these five nominations. And the Woman in the Dunes, the Japanese-nominated Best Foreign Language Film, is number one. And I Am Cuba comes in at number two overall on Letterboxd. So those are the only two that come in above the nominations. In the IMDb, we've got Mars Nadrinu, which is about a Sermian our Serbian army in World War I. Then Father of a Soldier is number two. Woman in the Dunes is number three. And Dosti is number four. So Dr. Strangelove is the highest rated English language film of the year. So opening it up to any release from 1964, what would your pick have been? Anything from 1964. It probably would have been Strangelove. Yeah, I would have said Strangelove was number one with Mary Poppins as the runner-up. Those would have been my picks. But other films that I would have gotten to before I got to My Fair Lady, you know, we've mentioned Goldfinger a couple of times. Mm-hmm. We recently did an episode of, is it Jaws with Paul, where we talked about you know, Jimbo, and he and Andy had earlier covered, that's Andrew Leyland, sorry, had earlier covered A Fistful of Dollars, which was a remake of Yojimbo that came out this year. I would put a fistful of dollars ahead of My Fair Lady. Yeah, Letterboxd puts fistful of dollars between Strange Love and Mary Poppins. So we also have Seven Days in May coming up very high on this list. A great John Frankenheimer film, yeah. Yeah, The Night of the Iguana got a lot of recognition. That's up here on the list. I mean that Letterboxd has seventy-two results on the first page. And Mary Poppins doesn't make it. So 
Doctor Who, the Dalek invasion of Earth makes it because they re-edited that. This is not the Peter Cushing film. Mm -hmm. This, I don't believe it is. I'll double check it. But yeah, this is the actual William Hartnell story edited into one long film, which they've done a few times. And that was a 10-parter. Yeah, I, I think Peter Cushing one is called Dalek Invasion 2154 AD or something like that. Yeah, it is something like that. I have the DVD. I haven't gotten around to it. One of the few. That, the second Peter Cushing film I haven't gotten around to yet because I was not happy with the first. Yeah, I, 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 I think that they did the companions very, very wrong. Turned my favorite companion of all time into comic relief. And I'm like, no, no, no. He's the one that taught the Doctor how to be a hero. He was the model. I would schedule time for it just because it's in no way like the character he would later play with Catherine Tate and David Tennant. But I, I do like Bernard Cribbins in the second Peter Cushing film. Yeah. Anyway, going to the second page of Letterboxd results, that's where we finally see My Fair Lady. It's four rows down, so that makes it... So it's number 129 for the year. Uh, they've got an Americanization, or the Americanization of Emily above that, which I would also support with Julie Andrews and James Garner. So, yeah, it's... Earlier I said I had no problems with My Fair Lady being nominated. As I'm going through the list of everything else that was out this year, I, I think, yeah, other years I would have no problems with the nomination, but looking at what came out, no, it wasn't even top five. It's a very well-made movie, but it's not top five in this batch. It's only nine spots above the um, Rankin-Bass televised Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which I do enjoy, but Santa Claus is coming to town is better. It's also behind uh, the Daleks and the Aztecs, also the Doctor Who supercuts. So do we have, or who would we recommend this to? I would recommend it to people who enjoy Broadway, and I'm saying that instead of musicals because... If you think musicals, you think Singing in the Rain or, you know, you mentioned Anchor's Way. You know, if you're thinking of like the Gene Kelly, Judy Garland style of musicals or even West Side Story, we're kind of migrating past that a little bit or musicals are maturing past that to where they are becoming more literal adaptations of Broadway plays. So I would say if you enjoy Broadway theater, I would check this out because it is done by a great cast with a skillful hand. We kind of said this before, you know, obviously this is coming from the opinion of two males, but it is pro-feminist up to a point considering the era in which it was made and set. So, you know, if you're looking for just films about strong female characters, I would I would recommend it from that perspective i can't think uh, apart from some small little nuances here and there that are just old-fashioned i can't think of anything objectionable to where we would give any content warnings like we sometimes do yeah i, I would recommend it to a lot of the same people the only caveat i would put in is that like you said there's a lot of strong feminist message in here I would just be I would just warn that it's undermined by at least the last few seconds if not the last 10 minutes. So if you're if you're watching it with kids maybe be prepared to have a conversation about about that piece. 
and how she returns to the unhealthy relationship instead of going off to find healthy ones. And that's kind of the closest thing I have to a content warning on this one. So should we let people know what they should be looking forward to next month? Absolutely. We are going to jump ahead quite a bit in time and head over into the Alps where the hills are alive as we join Julie Andrews, who we talk quite a bit about this episode, and Christopher Plummer in The Sound of Music, directed by a uh, former Best Director winner, Robert Wise, which for our listeners, I don't know all of the content differences in different countries and areas or whatnot, but at least in the States, The Sound of Music is one of the few Fox films that is available on the Disney Plus service. So if you have Disney Plus and you want to watch a, a longer in advance to catch up to be ready for uh, next episode, you may want to check and see if it's there in your area. I can actually check that momentarily in the Canadian version here. While I am doing that, if you want to look at the other nominees, Sound of Music beat out Darling, Dr. Zhivago, Ship of Fools, and A Thousand Clowns. And I can confirm that the Sound of Music is available on Disney Plus here in Canada as well. And in fact, it also suggests, if you enjoy that, that you might enjoy Annie, Oklahoma, and Mary Poppins Returns, which are not up this year. Um, Oklahoma would have been in the past, but that's there too. That's more the traditional musical. With Rod Steiger, who is one of Trey's favorites and will also be mentioned next month. Yes. All right. So, yeah, join us in a month's time when we talk about the Saudi music, which is another musical that's pushing the three-hour time, <laughs> the three-hour runtime. Yes. It's, I think, five minutes longer than, than uh, My Fair Lady here, which was 170 minutes, 172 if you had the credits for the restoration. I think Dr. Zhivago clocks in at three hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it, the 1992 re-release, according to Wikipedia, is 200 minutes. The 1965 release was 193. So that has been sitting in my DVD collection for a long time, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to make time for that, too. I will try, because of the nominees, Sound of Music and Dr. Zhivago are the only two I have access to. One of the highlights for me from doing this podcast is, you know, we we look at things like Peter Jackson's Lords of the Ring trilogy, which we'll be covering towards the end of the podcast, and people would marvel at, wow, a two and a half hour film, a film pushing three hours. If you've been following us along with us, hopefully you've picked up by now. That is in no way a new trend. <laughs> Yeah, the most unusual runtime we've had so far was Marty at about 94 minutes. And I think, at least at the time of this recording, that still holds the record for being the shortest. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, so to our listeners, join us again for Sound of Music, and thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.